All right. Well, the last three weeks I've been in a series and I've been talking about um, uh, what it means to, to, first of all, a story of full devotion. I talked about how the Lord uh, brought a people together to launch our church. And really, the launching of our church was an expression of, of God's full devotion to his people who are serving on his mission. And then the second week, I talked about a life of full devotion. And what does it look like for a life to be lived in the command of God to, to love the Lord with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, but also to make disciples of all all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe the Lord's teachings. And then last week, I talked about what it looked like to be a people of full devotion. And I culminated those three weeks by talking about the four motivations that compel us from God's love. And this idea of compelled is kind of the, the title of our series, the title of our campaign. It comes from 2 Corinthians 5.14, which is on both walls there. And you can see, for the love of Christ compels us. And we talked about what does it look like to live a life that is compelled. And, and I, I've really wanted to boil this down to the most simple statement. So you didn't even have to think about it. You could just... Right off the top of your head, no, this is what it means to, to live compelled. And here's what it is. Compelled simply means that we as Christians live as we've been loved. We're the most loved people in the world. We, we have an unimaginable love and an inconceivable love and, and, and an unconquerable love. And that's the love of God we live in. Compelled simply means that we live as we have been loved. And so as we looked last week at those four motivations from 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 15 that compel us, today I want to build off of that and I want to take the next step. And over the next four weeks, I'm going to talk about four postures of our life that because we are compelled, there is a way that we live or a way that we posture our life before God in the world. And I'm going to use a word that's very familiar to us as a church. It's the word sent. Sent. We talk about being sent all the time. But I'm going to use the letters of sent to form an acrostic to help us each week. And today, obviously, is that first letter S. I want you to see that a life of full devotion is compelled to live sent. And the first posture of living compelled that we'll consider today is surrender, surrender. Christians live compelled by God's love to surrender to the Lord Jesus and walk in God's will. Christians live compelled by God's love to surrender to the Lord Jesus and to walk in God's will. Now, before we go right into the text of Judges 6, let me give you a little introduction to the whole book, but also to the first 10 verses of chapter 6, because I'm not going to read those for us. Judges is a book that covers a period of history in the Israelite people before there was ever a king. So we know King Saul was the first king of Israel. Well, this is the period of time before there was ever a king installed. And the reason that God did not give them a king is he was wanting to teach the people not to depend on one person, but to listen to his word so that they would always trust in him. 
And so there's a very familiar pattern in the book of Judges that we see, and it's this. Verse 1 of Judges 6 says, And the people were wicked, didn't want anything to do with God, and they turned away, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And when the question comes, how did that work out for you? The answer is, it didn't work out at all for them. Because by verse 6, they're going, hey, God, this isn't working at all. Help. And they're crying out for help. And God hears them, and he wants them to know that he's hearing them. And so he raises up a leader to point them back to him. And those leaders are called judges because they lead from the righteous law of God. And they use prophets to declare the word of God, and then in their position, they point the people through the word of God back to the heart of God so that they would follow him and him alone. So that's kind of an introduction. And what we find when we come to Judges chapter 6, verse 11, is the people have done what they wanted to do, what they thought was right in their own eyes. They found out that doesn't work at all. They cried out for help. God heard them. He raised or was in the process of raising up a judge when he sent a prophet to him to say, hey, hang on, God's working on your behalf. And so let's go to verse 11 and let's look at where we pick up in the life of Gideon and God's call to him. And what I want you to see today is as we talk about what it means to live compelled in surrender to God, I want you to see three phases of surrender that we see in the life of Gideon. Verse 11, it begins, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joaz the Abiazrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I've found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. May God, believe the, may God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Here's the first thing we see in verses 11 all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 40. God speaks and calls Gideon. Gideon freaks out. That, that's kind of how it begins here. What we see is that the Lord appears to Gideon through an angel and he says, good morning, mighty warrior. You know, if he had been in the gym pumping some iron, 
that would have been believable. If he'd been on the range, throwing some lead down, down the range, that would have been believable. He was in the wine press. You know where the wine press was? It was down below so that the temperature could be more controlled as they pressed the juices from the grapes. It was a place of hiding. And what was he doing in the wine press? Making wine? Uh-uh. They were hiding behind what the wine press was all about, and he was beating out the wheat from the stalk so he could take the grain of it and hide it from the Midianites. Do you have any idea how dusty it gets when you beat the grain head out of the grain? It's a massive dust storm. You want to be outside where the wind can blow the dust away. Not so with Gideon. He's filled with fear and it's caused him to run into a small room, a basement, and he's, it's full of dust everywhere. And all he's trying to do is work feverishly to get the grain beat out so he can hide it because the Midianites are going to attack them again. You see, they were in a period of their life, verses 1 through 10, when they were doing what they wanted to do and thought it would be okay. But what was happening is that the Midianites were coming and having their way with the Israelites. They would attack and pillage their communities, and they would take everything they wanted to take, and the Israelites were helpless to do anything about it. So, I mean, Gideon's just trying to feed his family, you know, because if they don't kill us, they'll starve us. We've got to do something. That's where we find Gideon when the angel comes to him and says, Hello, mighty man of valor. Ye who hides in the basement hoping that the Midianites don't get here before you get some food put away for you. You see, what the angel said to him had more to do with how God was going to use him than it did about the present circumstances of his real situation that he found himself in. And that's where we find it with Gideon. But what happens with Gideon? His first reaction shows what's really in his heart. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And there's no time when we can tell better what's really in our heart through what's coming out of our mouth than when pressure and crisis has struck us in life. Gideon, you see, friends, has become more focused on his situation than he is on God. He's forgotten about God. He's neglected him. He's dismissed him. And he's even gotten to the point where he started blaming him. You know, if you could look at that word, please, where he responds to the angel the first time, it wouldn't just be spelled P-L-E-A-S-E. It would be spelled more P-U-U-H-L-E-E-E-E-E-A-S-S-S-S-Z. Police! Are you kidding me? All the things that our fathers have told us about. How good God is and how much he does. What's he doing here? You know why I'm down here if you're from God. The Midianites are coming and they're pillaging. They're having their way with us. And you dare walk in here and tell us how good God is? You see, he's become so consumed. Without the consideration for the way that they've lived without God become so consumed with the current situation they've lost sight of who God is and the things that he's done for them and they've even begun to blame him and you know what blame to God is really a recipe for bitter stew and that's what Gideon had been eating bitter stew but you see friends God's not afraid of our bitterness 
because God is the healer of broken hearts. And at the end of the day, bitterness against God is really just a love story where we've become embittered in our relationship with God. And God doesn't allow Gideon's bitterness to stop him, but rather God just loves him through the midst of that. And so he commands him to go. Have I not sent you? And immediately Gideon realizes that his bitterness is not going to stop God. He's just heard what he said and he's realized what's in his heart. And he thought, this isn't going to work, so I've got to try something else. Oh yeah, I remember what Moses did, our great prophet. Let me try excuses. So the next thing he offers God is what? An excuse. And he says to God, are you kidding me? You, you want to come to the weakest tribe of all 12 tribes. I mean, man, we, we, don't, even, we don't even know where the training center is for battle. We're, we're, we're the weakest tribe. Uh, uh, and not only the weakest tribe, but look at me. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm nothing to you, God. I'm the weakest of my tribe. So he just begins to offer this excuse to God as to why God could not use him, God should not use him. But you know what God said to him? I'll not be thwarted by your inability. That's exactly why I've chosen you. You see, God made us for his glory, friends. But listen to me, he remakes us. He redeems us by his power that we might demonstrate not our own goodness, but his majesty. That's what God is wanting to do in our lives. And so verses 16 to 18, it tells us that the Lord promises his provision and his protection, not only to Gideon, but to all who serve with him. And here's what Gideon does at this point. So he sees that his bitterness will not thwart God. His excuses do not remove God from dealing with him. And so he says this, okay, there's a turning that starts to happen in Gideon's heart here. He says, okay, then will you wait for a moment? Because what Gideon's about to do is he's about to put God to the test. And friends, let me tell you something. You should never test God unless the heart intent that you have is to discern God's will for your life. And when you desire to discern God's will, then a test is exactly what you should do so that you can know for sure where God is leading you. You see, we're instructed to test the spirits, the scriptures teach us. And when we do, here's what we're aiming to affirm in our own understanding of God. We want to know what it is that is God's work through the spirit within us that aligns with his will that is revealed through his word, which is the living Lord Jesus, and that leads us in that work by his kingship to the praise of our triune God. You see, that's what we learn today from Gideon, but also in our heart as well. God is not a God of chaos or confusion. There's not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they're all pursuing their own means and ends. But when the Spirit of God speaks to you, he will illumine within you the will of God that comes through his word to show you how to follow the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is the risen, ruling, and reigning Lord and King of all that's the perfect unity of our triune God and how he works in our lives here today as he has always worked. 
And so verses 19 through 24 tell us about Gideon. He goes in and he, he bakes some cakes and he prepares some meat and broth and he brings them out to the angel and the angel says, put them on the rock. And so he puts them on the rock and the, the moment he puts them on the rock, he pours the broth over and fire comes up out of the rock and completely consumes him. And when he does, the angel of the Lord disappears. You see, in that moment, Gideon knows that God has accepted his test, that God has affirmed in his heart what he was saying to him, what the angel was speaking to him. And Gideon knows at this point, God has appeared to me. This wasn't someone else. This was God. He has affirmed it. He has confirmed it. And that's the one that I should worship. And that's what he does. The Lord comforts his fears, the Lord heals his bitterness, and the Lord draws him near in worship. And Gideon, as a result, names the altar that he built and the place where he met with God, the Lord is peace. Why? Because in that moment, the prevailing peace of God had pervaded every depth of his heart and brought about a prevailing sense of his presence so that everything else that was wrong in life didn't mean it was all immediate corrected. It just wasn't as important as God who was with him. That's what God does in our lives, friends. There's no peace like God's presence that comforts all of our fears and leads to worship. And when God confirms his will, he reveals himself. Because what he wants is for us to trust in him, not just the work that he has for us to do. You see, it's not about God just saying, go do this, and we go do it. And when we go do it, we're satisfied. God gets satisfied with us, and he gives us a little trinket. He throws us a bone. That's not how God works. God wasn't just trying to get something done through Gideon, but rather God's work is to fulfill his will in us, that his glory might be displayed through us by his fuller presence within us. That's what God's laboring for, not only in the life of Gideon, but for each and every one of you today. You say, but what if God's telling me to do something? I'm telling you that whatever God is saying, I'm telling you the way he wants it done is not through your perfect ability, but rather through his more fuller presence in your life. And that's worship. This is where we see that first phase of surrender to God. It brings us to a point of decision, a line in the sand, if you will. And what we see is that surrender begins by submitting to God's will for your life. You see, God works in two critical ways in bringing us to this point of submission where we gladly submit to his will. First of all, he purifies us to strengthen our faith. You see, the problem is this, friends. The problem is when we offer our bitterness to blame God and the problem is when we offer our excuses to divert God's attention away so we can choose something else. The problem is God is not, he's not in any way uh, distracted by those things. He came prepared and he is sufficient to overwhelm them and overcome them. And so he purifies Gideon. That's what he does to lead to worship. And in the purity of that, when Gideon is ready to say yes to the Lord because he knows it's the Lord, that's what he did when he said the Lord is peace and he named that place, then the will of God became very clear to him. You see, sometimes we just want to use God as our magic eight ball. We just want to get something from him so we can get on with our lives. But God will not be used in that way. That's exactly what the Israelites were wanting to do. They wanted him to be their sugar daddy so that they would be able to get what they wanted and he would give it when they wanted it to be given. But God said, I'm not here 
just to be used of you in any way that you want to use me. And I'm not here just to bring about little trinkets for you. I'm here to be with you. That's what God wants. That is the most difficult truth for anyone to fully embrace. God doesn't just want to give you something. He wants to be with you. When God does his work, he's laboring for a more fuller presence with you. And so he purifies him. What does he do? He purges him. He takes out that bitterness from his heart that's keeping him away from God. He removes that false worship and that idolatry of, of, oh, pitiful pearl me, I can't do this, I can't do that. And he brings him to a point where he comes close to him. And when Gideon knew that God was near, what God wanted became very clear to him, first and foremost, to be with him. You see, friends, God has no kingdom work for you that doesn't begin from his work taking place in you. So I say what God's doing in your heart today is the most important thing, not just in this moment, in your life. Because whatever God has for you will come out of what God wants to do in you. And some of you don't want God to work in you because you know that means you get dethroned. But until you come to this first phase, that line of decision where you submit your will to the will of the Father, you're not going to be at peace with God. The Lord's not going to be peace for you. He's going to be conflict to you. And that's what Gideon had to learn. How powerful this is for us. For clarity for how to obey only comes from God's refining by his more deep work in you. And friends, God calls us to himself before he sends us to work for him. Why is that? Because God wants all of our service that is done for him to be done out of the overflow of our intimacy with him. Not just to be something, oh, God told me to go do this, so I'm doing it. Rather, he orders our steps in what we are to do when we delight in him before we go to do for him. That's what the psalmist tells us in chapter 37, verse 23. He says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. In other words, rock solid, absolute, are established before the Lord when he delights in his way. God wants our service for him to flow out of our intimacy with him. And what he does is he exposes those false strengths. He strips us of all self-confidence so that all we have is him. And friends, in this first phase, when you submit your will to God, here's what you will find. When you know that he is all you have, he will prove that he is all-sufficient all that you need. Surrender begins by submitting to God's will as he reveals himself for your life. So once Gideon knows what God's will is, what time is it? Time to get busy. That's not always the next best step though. Look in chapter 7 beginning in verse 1 through verse 8. I'm not going to read these for the sake of time but what we see is that Gideon got busy. Man he got so busy that he went out and found 32,000 men 
who would come and fight for the Lord. But here's what we see. We see that these men who were wanting to fight for the Lord often were only fighting out of the same obligation that some people serve him with today. It wasn't in their heart to do it, but rather it was in their alt to do it. They had to do this because serving the Lord wasn't as bad as getting beat up by the Midianites, right? And that's what they thought they were doing. And so the Lord tells Gideon, but Gideon, good job on the 32,000, but this army is too big. You got too many people. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Too big. By that, you mean more than we need, right? Yes, yes. You see, friends, one key reason that sacrifice is central to surrendering to God is this. He wants our service to demonstrate his strength, not ours. He is laboring for his glory, not ours. And until we've sacrificed, it's still all about us. Because that's what we are full of. Gideon likely agreed initially. Verse 3, when God's about to take his army size down a little bit. You know, Lord, you're right. I noticed there was probably 100. There might have even been 150 men who, they look like cowards. They couldn't do this if they had to. I totally agree with you, God. Let's get rid of those 100 or so cowards. If any of you are afraid, you can go home. And at that moment, the world stood still when 22,000 men said, I'm out of here. And they took off. And you could hear their murmuring as they turned and their tail was tucked. And they got out of there because they didn't want anything to do with this. And Gideon, in that moment, becomes mute. He cannot speak because of the wave, the sea of people that are walking away from their alt for God, right? I mean, oh my goodness, what's happening? I don't know what took place at the end of verse three and how much time passed before you get to verse four, but I can tell you for Gideon, it was a lifetime that happened. He could not believe. He went into comatose state after verse three because God had just undone all the great work that Gideon had done. And there was a temptation in his heart to turn to God and go, what are you thinking? But he didn't, he didn't. He'd already made that argument to God when he got bitter and offered an excuse. And it didn't work then. He knew it wouldn't work now. You see, friends, often we look at our lives and we think, God, I've, I've done so much. I've made so many sacrifices for you. What more could possibly there be? But we need to understand this, that God doesn't look at our lives the way we look at our lives. God sees our lives perfectly. We do not. He knows us from before we were in the womb, the psalmist says. He knows our ins and our outs, our comings and our goings, the inclinations of our heart and the orientation of our minds. God knows us every way. And God's understanding of us and what we need for our sanctification is always perfect. And so the Lord tells Gideon, verse 4 of chapter 7, I know you had 32 and I know 22 just left. And those 10,000 you've got, I love them, but you've got too many people. I still need to do some work. 
Friends, let me tell you this. Not only does God see us differently than we see us, God sees our problems differently than the way we see them. God sees the challenges of our life differently than we see them. And if we don't stay surrendered to God by submitting to his will, we'll begin to look at our own problems and challenges through our eyes and we'll stop listening to God. But praise be to God, Gideon didn't do that here. He said, well... I mean, you've already made a fool of us for all that we've done. That's what it feels like. That's not what God was doing. That's what it felt like to get in. You see, the Lord is never confused. He's never intimidated. And he's never dumbfounded by your problems and by your situation. Gideon said this, but God, there are too many of them for us. The numbers don't match up. The proportions aren't right. How could we possibly expect our 10,000 to conquer their many thousands? That was his response to God. God's response to him was, there's too much of you for me. And so losing 22,000 was hard, but you know, 10,000 was still not a terrible number, right? But when God works, he shares no glory, and he's never dependent on our ability. When God finished his purifying work, <laughs> are you ready? I know, it's not surprising to some of you. You've read the story, you've heard it. 300 remained. You know what that is? The percentage, less, actually it should be negative, or less than 1%, because less than 1% of those who were originally gathered with Gideon remained when God was finished with his sanctifying work. I don't know about you, friends, but, but 1% me and 99% God, I can begin to imagine when I get out of my hyper-spirituality and know what it ought to be and see what it really feels like, I know what Gideon felt like. He felt rent through and through. And you can only imagine, he's going, you know, if I'd had to pick 300 from 32,000, these aren't even the 300 I would have picked. Good grief, you were all on my list to get rid of it first and you didn't get up and walk away. Right? I mean, you can only imagine, I mean, at this point, he's just going nuts inside. And if there was any hope left after the first cut, the second cut took it all away. It was gone. Because God's righteous work in us, friends, need nothing of us to be accomplished. That's so hard for us to get that what God wants to do in us, it's not that he doesn't love us, but he understands us. And he understands what he is doing. And he needs nothing of us to be accomplished. And when God works through us in our own hearts and lives, he shows the same sufficiency by which he will accomplish his will in this passage of Scripture. For all of God's work in and through us always gets completed to perfection. That's what Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 6. For he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Perfection on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord leads Gideon out to battle and he promises him victory. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 7. Let's go. And it says, you know, it tells us that the 300, they had to be deflated. But it says they took their provisions and their trumpets. <laughs> Can you just hear the weeping? They brought trumpets. We're going to battle and they brought band instruments. Did anybody have a pocket knife with them? 
I mean, you know, there's, there's just all kinds of things. I mean, his heart, he can't even offer something out of it. It's just completely rent. But as I said, God doesn't work in the same way that we think. Because we shouldn't be so confused as to think the 300 he had, oh, well, you see, he was sending in the special ops. That's what's going on here. He's got a special recruited valiant warriors. But friends, this is not the same 300 you're thinking about. This is not Leonidas. This is not the Spartans. They are not the same kind of trained crew that we think of that Hollywood likes to glorify. They were going out against an army that might have been as large as Xerxes' army in the Persians of 300,000 plus. But these were not the Spartans. These were Gideon's band, literally. With trumpets. It's a different kind. If you look at verse 7 in chapter 7 of Gideon, it says this, but he retained 300 men. The sense is this. They were so full of fear and cowardliness, they just couldn't talk. And that's the only reason they weren't gone themselves. I love this. Gideon was right. These 300 shouldn't have been there either. But for some reason, when the roll got called and he said, if you're scared, you can leave, they couldn't move. And that's the only thing that had left them there. And so band instruments laying everywhere, pick them up and let's go. Let's go see what's going to happen. I mean, it couldn't be any worse to get beat by attacking than it could be just by living, right? Because that's what had been happening. But friends, hear me, God's little, God's little, is always more sufficient than our unlimited. It really doesn't matter how far the Lord leads you in sacrifice because even a 1% that was ruled by cowardly fear but that was married to God as the 99% would be more powerful than any other calculation they could have made for this situation. Friends, the more that we hold on to self and the more that we hold on to the things of the world that we want, the less we can take hold of the things that God has for us. And that's why sacrifice is so critical for us. For God empties our life through sacrifice so that he can fill us to overflowing with his all-sufficiency. And that's the second phase of surrender that we see here. That once we are committed or submitted rather to his will, surrender leads us to full sacrifice, not only for the will of God, but for the way that God wants to work his will out. And that's what we see here. Proverbs 16, 9 reminds us that the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord is the one who establishes his steps. You see, it's not just about God's going to tell you his will, good luck. But God has a way to bring his will about. And it all comes back to that intimacy with which he begins to work in us. I remember in June of 2004 when um, we were just doing core group development as a church. We weren't even a church yet. Uh, I was telling people we were going to be a church and hoping that they believed me. But, but again, there was no proof of that other than we were meeting weekly on Sunday nights. And I had 
begun to negotiate with a local businessman about a property he had here in Ozark. And it had come time to put up or shut up. You know, you either sign the contract or I'm going to sell to someone else. And I knew I couldn't do that. I knew I was supposed to do this. But man, I'm telling you, my heart was full of fear. I had no idea what I was, I knew what I was supposed to do. I had no idea how it was going to get done. And I'm in Orange Beach, Alabama. Listen, friends, if you need to get close to God, go to the Redneck Riviera. (laughs) The white sands and the brilliance of the fellowship of the people on the beach. Well, actually not that. I'm on the eighth story of a high-rise condominium with my family, ruining the week for them because I'm miserable. And I look at this contract. I got an email and I had to run over to Kinko's and get it printed. It was a contract for the lease of the building. And I look at it and the monthly lease that I was signing was more than my monthly salary at the time. And I said, Kristen, if I sign this, I'm responsible for this. I have no idea. All I knew was that God had affirmed every step of the way what we were supposed to be doing and it made very clear this was the place we were supposed to launch. And in a Thelma and Louise kind of moment, I signed, put the hammer down to the floor and sent it back. Y'all don't even know who Thelma and Louise are, are you? (laughs) Golly, I gotta work on my illustrations here. I'm gonna tell you the greatest freedom and just release came to me in that moment. Because I knew that I was supposed to be trusting the Lord in what I was doing more than trying to dissect what he was doing it in the way that he was working in it. You see, friends, when we submit to the Lord to sacrifice in the way that he would have us to, incidentally, I never personally had to pay one day of rent on that facility, just so you know that. But just because you submit to his will and, and, and surrender your life to sacrifice for the way that he wants to work. You see, it's not that the difficulty goes away. But rather the rest in him and the trust in him and the release of what is and what could be and what might be. It, it all disappears with the peace of God. It doesn't make the situation easier, but it makes the focus on Christ more hopeful. And sacrifice serves us to see emptiness of our ability and a full dependence on God. But we don't look at it the way he does. You see, we, we often see a sacrificial work, a, a work of God that's made in response to our sacrifice. And then we begin to think, my sacrifice for God, that's enough. But friends, God's not impressed with the sacrifice because it's not the sacrifice that he's after. We can't get hung up on the sacrifice because what God is working for is unhindered intimacy within us. A heart that is completely empty of ourself, completely empty of the world that's wanting and waiting to be nothing more than simply to be filled with him. You see, when God leads you to sacrifice, he is always leading you to deeper intimacy with him. To a greater rending of the things of the world and things of self that have filled us to make room for what he has for us. And he always strips our self-reliance to demonstrate his power and to show his might and glory. Surrender, friends, not only begins, surrender not only begins 
by submitting to God's will, but it leads you to sacrifice for the way that God wants to work in your life. Verse 9 through 18, we see that God continues to lead them. He's faithful. Now Gideon's commanding his army because God's told him to move out into battle. Light your torches and take your trumpets, he says. But God tells him, listen, I hear you. I see you. I'm with you. I need you to know that. He comforts them. He, he doesn't ignore their fears. It's interesting. Every time a fear uh, arises within them, God's already there because he doesn't ignore their fear. He's not going to just get them away from it or around it, but God's going to take them right through it to show that as big as that fear may seem, it's not really anything. And that's how God leads us to confront our fears. He doesn't ignore them. He absolves them by his promise and by his presence. He tells Gideon, you're going to hear a a vision that someone interprets, a dream someone's going to interpret for you. And it's going to tell you about the victory that I'm going to give you. And when you hear that, you will know with certainty that I am in this. And that's exactly what happens. And so as they move forward in faith, their fear wasn't gone. It was just overcome. You see, it tells us in verse 12 of chapter 7 that that they still looked at the enemy. They still looked at their opposition. They still looked at their challenge. They still looked at their situation. And here's what they saw by looking at the Midianites. The Midianites looked like locusts in abundance. In other words, they were everywhere. Their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Friends, when fears run wild and rampant in us, they can seem endless with the possibilities that they create and the what ifs and the what could and what will go wrong. And so often our fears are really just a right assessment of reality of what's going to happen if in fact we try to go and do for God instead of staying surrendered to God. And what God is saying is don't let fears get in your way. Let's walk through them and let me show you that. And so when this dream gets interpreted and Gideon gets encouraged because he listened to God's word, what happened was God absolves the fear not by removing it but by overcoming it through encouragement. Encouragement, friends, because the whole army, all 300 of them heard it and said, you know what, he's right. That's what God said would happen. That's what's going to happen. Friends, that reminds me to ask you, make sure that you know who it is that is around you so that when the situation gets serious and gets real and fears are attacking you, the voices that speak into you are being used by God and not by something else to lead you in a different direction. Before we told anyone we were praying about planting a church, Kristen and I had done a lot of talking about it. And, and honestly, we were just confused. If God wanted us to plant a church, fine, we'll do it, God. I mean, that's what I was telling him at the time. A little later, that would change when he said, okay, let's do this. Whoa, let's not be hasty, you know. But we, we didn't know. We just knew that God was leading in some way and And honestly, there was a lot of confusion, a lot of questions, and we were seeking his will. And in the midst of all of this, uh, we were just saying, God, if you would just confirm for us. One night in a prayer meeting, there were hundreds of people in the room, and most of which I didn't know them. And and in a moment of prayer, the, the one who was leading asked for any testimonies or words of encouragement that might come. And from the other side of the room, a woman's voice that to this day, I still don't know who it was. She began to speak. Well, I couldn't hardly hear her because the room was so big, and and I didn't really think much about it. But then in an instant, her voice became very clear in my hearing. 
And when she became clear in my hearing, she said, the Lord has called you, but you are afraid. You fear that if you move forward, you will fail. But God is saying he will not fail. You will move forward. You fear that if you move forward, you wonder what others will think, but God is saying, do not fear what they think. You fear what this might mean for your future, but God says he is your future. Do not fear where he is leading you. You fear that the work God is calling you to is a mountain and you have no idea how to move it. And God says he will move it for you. God is calling, she said. Follow him. (laughs) Hundreds of people. And I'm just wondering if everybody knows she was talking to me because the only thing she didn't say was my name. Everything else was right there, right here. And when we got home that night, I said to Kristen, did you, and she said, hear that woman? And I said, yeah, I heard her. But more than that, I heard God through her. And we turned on that night, and our prayers took a different tenor and the way we prayed. When Gideon got up at this point, he commanded his band of troops, pick up your trumpet and take your candle. We're going to whip some Midianites. And that's what they did, friends. When you serve the Lord's work, it never ultimately depends on what you've got in your hands. It only depends on who it is that's ruling your heart. There's an interesting phenomena that takes place from this point on. You never hear another reference to the number or the size of the Midianites again. Because the problem, the situation, the circumstance, the challenge that was creating all their fears no longer mattered. Because God was leading. Surrender, friends, it begins with submitting your will to God. It leads you to sacrifice for the way that God is working, but it culminates in faithfully serving the Lord by his presence filling you. This might sound funny to you, but I often laugh at the fears that I had when we first started as a church. Fears of I wonder if anybody will come back. That's actually my prevailing thought after the first day of service launched. But would it be too much to confess to you that's very much the same fear that arises regularly in my own heart even to today? And if it's not a fear of will they come back, it's a fear that manifests itself by saying, will they come for the right reasons to meet with God and not just to get entertained in his name? You see, there's nothing about this passage that shows Gideon's ability. I mean, he's a coward from first to last. 
But our inability never inhibits God's willingness to use us, nor limits his ability to accomplish his will. God strengthens for his work, not by making the enemy smaller, not even by making us bigger, but God strengthens for his work by becoming bigger in us so that we'll trust him and follow him. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. Surrender culminates in faithfully following the Lord.